You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So to get started this morning, uh, I want to give you a little fun fact about my family. And this is actually, uh, it's actually a fact about my wife, Melissa. And uh, you, you probably don't know this about her. And just to be clear, um, I did check with her to make sure this was okay to share with you. And she said it is. All right. So here, here goes. Um, my wife, Melissa, right here, she is extremely good at playing Nintendo. I'm talking about like the first generation, you know, Nintendo entertainment system. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about, like the original Nintendo, right? She is an amazing player of the Nintendo and especially um, the game Mario Brothers. Um, uh, just a few years ago, we were. I went back to North Carolina to visit our family, and while we were staying with Melissa's mom, uh, Melissa found her old Nintendo. She pulled it out. She put in Mario Brothers, and she beat the entire game in one night. Okay, like for, she's that good. Okay, and I'm 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 proud of you, baby. I am. I am. I want you guys to know she's an amazing player at Nintendo, and. And, uh, and speaking of Nintendo, um, do you guys remember how that old Nintendo looked? You know what I'm talking about? That it was like the gray boxy system, and it had the uh, the rectangle controller. You guys, this is a show of hands. You guys can visualize what I'm saying here. Okay, good. So you guys remember uh, on the front of that system there were two buttons, and one button was a power button, and then beside that button there was a. You guys remember? It's a reset button. Okay, you get you, get, you see what I'm doing here. Uh, <laughs> If you've ever played Nintendo, you guys know that every now and then the, the reset button would come in handy. From time to time, uh, sometimes the game would freeze up, uh, or sometimes you might get to a certain level and, and you, you kind of got stuck and you didn't know where to go. And if that ever happened to you, all you had to do was hit reset and the game would come back to the beginning. So when, when there was a glitch in the system... Track with me here. When there was a glitch in the system, or if things got too complicated, the reset button would take you back to the start, back to the basics, back to the foundation, if you will. I think that's what we need as a church. Here in the month of August, um, it has now been one full year since the fatal explosion at Minnehaha Academy upper school. And uh, after that explosion last year, many of you will remember, we, we bounced around for a little bit. We, we met uh, to worship uh, first at the Riverview Theater, and then at St. Thomas for about a month, and then we spent last fall and early this year at Concordia University. And we were really looking forward to being in this space because, um, you know, it, and when it comes to finding a space in the cities, that can accommodate us is basically impossible, all right? That's just the truth. And, and so we were excited to be here, and we are here. We're, we're, we've, we're, we've squeezed in here for the time being, and, and yet we all know, you parents know, uh, we still have a, a bit of a classroom crisis downstairs with our kids, and, and there's still some challenges that we're facing in this space, and all those challenges have made it difficult for us to settle. And for what it's worth, just to be honest with you from my perspective, a full year later, after the explosion, a full year later, 
it still feels like we're not quite on our feet. Things still feel, they, they still feel complicated. And so I think we need to hit reset. I, but my sense is that as a church and also as individuals, we, we just need to come back to the foundation. Why are we here? What are we, what are we trying to do here? How, how does God want us to live in this world? These are the kind of questions that transcend our circumstances. And although we should never lose sight of the answers to these questions, every now and then it's good to step back and to ask these questions all over again. Sometimes I think we need, I need a, gospel, a gospel reset. And so, with the support of the pastoral team, and God willing, I have four sermons that I hope will help us do that. And my plan is to preach these four sermons in the month of August. All right, We are going to hit reset as a church. And that means if we are hitting reset, then we, we've got to have something to come back to. We, we have to, to have some kind of, of big idea, some kind of, of main idea, some kind of start screen that will set us straight and tell us where to go. And I, I think I have one, all right? This, this is something that I wrote out one morning a little while ago, and it's been on the whiteboard in our kitchen for months. Part of it's erased, but it's still there. And, and the pastors have worked with me on this. And so think about this, what I'm about to say, think about this as the organizing principle for this sermon series. This is the main idea that we're going to keep coming back to, and it goes like this, okay? The more we are assured of God's love and of how much we don't deserve it, then the more we are humbled and filled with joy, and then the more we are poured out in love for others, which all amounts to magnifying the glory of God. You're going to hear that sentence a lot over the next few weeks. I think we can memorize it, so I'm going to say it again in four parts. There are four pieces here, four sermons, four pieces here. So track with me here. It goes like this. The more we are assured of God's love and of how much we don't deserve it, then the more we are humbled and filled with joy. Then the more we are poured out in love for others which all amounts, it all adds up to magnifying the glory of God. And so God willing, I'm going to preach four sermons that unpack that sentence. And the first sermon is today, and it has to do with the love of God because it all comes back to the love of God. All right, so let's pray to get started, and then we will dig in. Our great Father, what... We really need more than anything. That means just seriously more than anything in the whole, the whole entire world. What we need more than anything is to know your heart. That's because we, we live in a world that's constantly busy. And then we have our own hearts that often miss the mark and stay restless. And then before long, we can get distracted. And then, Father, when we're distracted, it becomes too easy to forget you. It can become too easy to lose sight of you and to lose sight of your grace. And so this morning, we need your help. We are asking for your help. Father, we're asking that this morning, whatever our, whatever our circumstances might be, however unideal our situation is, would you, Father, bring us back to your heart? Give us a fresh glimpse 
into the glory of your love. Remind us who you are. Remind us what you have done. Father, we ask that you would do this over the next three weeks and do it, we ask, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible, open to 1 John 4. Uh, there's a phrase there in verse 16 that I want to highlight. And this might sound really simple to you, but I think it's important. Okay, here's the phrase. Look there in verse 16. The Apostle John says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And this is an amazing verse for two reasons. First, John says here very plainly that God has love for us. John is talking to Christians here. He's writing to the church, and he says plainly that God loves us. And then second, John says that this love that God has for us is a love that we have known and believed. In other words, the love of God is not a sentimental idea. It's not. The love of God is something we have experience. The love of God is something that we can know and we can rely upon. So right here, straight away, in 1 John 4, 16, overall, John is saying that God loves us and we can experience God's love. And if that sounds elementary to you, I promise you it's not. In fact, I think that most of the problems and the challenges that we face in our lives today, a lot of it has to come back to us not really knowing that God loves us. Now, we have the category for God's love. I think if we were taking a Bible quiz, we could circle the right answer. But when it comes down to our actual lived experience, when it comes down to our learned reality Many of us do not live like God loves us. We just, we just don't. We are not assured of God's love. But we should be. And I want to give you three reasons why. So starting here in 1 John 4, here are three reasons why we can be assured of God's love. Number one, God's love is demonstrated. Two, God's love is deep, and three is God's love is determined. All right, we're going to start with the first one, which is right here. God's love is demonstrated. And we can see this right away in verse 9 of 1 John 4. So check out 1 John 4, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. John is saying this is how God's love was demonstrated to us. It's that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. All right, that's 1 John 4, 9, and it sounds a lot like John 3, 16, because this is the same apostle John who is writing both of these, and he says in John 3, 16, this is one of, most, this is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. John says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So God loved the world in this way. That's what he's saying. God loved the world in this way. What way? He sent. God sent 
his only son. And John expects us to know what sending the son meant. He tells us straightforward here in 1 John 4.10. It's that Jesus, the son of God, was sent into the world as the propitiation for our sins. That means that Jesus came here. God the Father sent Jesus here to be our atoning sacrifice. Jesus came to this world to die for us. That was his mission. The Father sent Jesus into this world to take our sins upon himself and to suffer the punishment that we deserve. That is how God demonstrated his love. What John is saying here is the same thing the Apostle Paul has said in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, again, this is super clear. Paul says there that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God, God's love for us, is synonymous to Jesus dying on the cross for us. The cross of Jesus is where we see the love of God. And I don't, I don't think we really get this. I, I, I don't think we understand the implications here how meaningful this is. What John is saying and what the entire New Testament is saying is that we, we never have to wonder what God thinks about us. We, we never have to scratch our heads wondering how God feels about us. I mean, all of us, like we, we, we're here in this world, we live in this world, and we're busy, and we're tired, and a lot of times we're just trying to make it. And sometimes it can feel like God is ignoring us, and we wonder if he really cares. Does he really care about me and the details, right? We, we know we can't completely ignore God because his fingerprints are everywhere in the world. We know there is a God. We know we are not that God. We know that that God is somewhere up there, but we don't know. We're not sure. We don't live like we know what he thinks about us. We don't really know. I don't really know. Live experience. I don't really know what God thinks about me. That's, that's most of us, right? And yet God has made it. He has made it so that we never have to think this way. God has shown his love for us. God has made it plain for us. God has spelled out his love for us. He has demonstrated his love for us in that Jesus died for us. It is one of the most simple, plain, clearest things in the whole Bible. God loves you. God has demonstrated his love for you. How? Jesus Christ died for you. God demonstrates his love, all right? Second thing is that God's love is deep. Okay, so track with me here. Jesus dying on the cross is the most vivid display of God's love and is also the vista into the heart of God who doesn't just show love but is love. The cross is the demonstration of God's love, and it's the tip of the iceberg. John is getting at this in 1 John 4, 16, when he says, God is love. 
John also says this in verse 8 of the same chapter. And by saying this, by saying God is love, John means something different here from saying that God shows love. God does show love, of course, but this is more. John is not talking about an action of God here. He is talking about God himself. John is talking about God in his essence. Who is God as God apart from the created world? Who is God in his eternal fellowship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity? Who is the God who has named himself and has condescended to us in his covenant as the God who acts in a certain way and therefore can be trusted. Who is this God and what is he like? He's love. God is love. That doesn't mean that love defines God, but God defines love. God is the one who gives love its meaning because it is who he is. God has always been love and will always be love. And this is another topic that the Apostle John has written about in his gospel. This is in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Jesus is actually talking about it there in his prayer to the Father. It's called the high priestly prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed um, with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And in this prayer, he is asking God the Father for his disciples to see his glory. Jesus wants his people to know him more deeply. And so he prays to God the Father, Father, make them see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, before there was ever anything outside of God, when there was only God himself, there was love. That's because God is Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, God is irreducibly relational. And that relationship, which is God himself, is love. The Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. And the Holy Spirit is that love and the bond of that fellowship. And this is what I'm saying when I say that love is deep, okay? God's love is deep. God's love is deeper and older than the universe. And in fact, the whole reason that there is a universe is because of God's love. God didn't need creation. We just went over this in the baptism class for our kids. God didn't need this world. He didn't need creation. He was perfectly satisfied in himself. He had no lack. But God created this world because the love that is himself overflows. That's the way that the theologian Jonathan Edwards explained it. It's that God's love, God's love is so full and so abounding that it continues to extend itself and to be shared. And so with that, as God's love extends itself, God made the universe and God made this planet and God made you and me. And then there was that moment when God told us his name. Exodus 34, God came to Moses because Moses had just led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and their future was, was not looking good. It was very uncertain because they were a sinful people, and Moses had his doubts about whether they were going to make it. And so Moses prays to God, and he wants to know, Moses wants to know, God, can I trust you? Moses says, how do I know that you're going to be with us and help us? Show me your ways, God. Okay, please, God, show me your glory. And God answers that prayer. 
God comes to Moses in chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a big moment in the Bible. This is God's chance to set the record straight. God here can tell us who he really is. God can tell us here. God can tell us what he is really like. And he does. And he says, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is God's name. That is who God is most essentially. God is love at the heart, and he is so much love that God does nothing but by love. Everything that God does is in reference to his love, including his judgment. And this is where we we might be asking, how, how does that work, okay? This needs to be said because We don't need to get the wrong idea about God and imagine that God is love means that he's some giant teddy bear in the sky. Okay, That's not what God's love means. We know from the Bible that God is righteous and that he judges sin. In Psalm 7, the psalmist tells us that God feels indignation every day. Every single day, God feels indignation. God is angry towards sin. So how does that work with his love? How does that line up with his love? Well, has to do with anger being a form of love. Anger is love on defense. Anger is what happens when what we love is threatened or harmed or offended. And we can see this, I think, totally in our human relationships. And the easiest easiest example I have is, uh, is when people come speeding down my street. All right? When cars come flying down my street in front of my house, guess what? I get angry, okay? Now, why? Well, it's because my kids play in the front yard of our house, and I love my kids. And so cars speeding down the street around where my kids play puts my kids in danger. It threatens the object of my love. And so my love gets defensive and I get angry and I start chunking rocks at these cars. I don't really do that. Just so you know, it's a joke. I just gave my kids ideas here. Uh, I don't do that. You know, I I don't do that. Thought about it, never done it. What's happening in that moment is that my my, my love, my allegiance to my children is offended, and I get angry. My love responds in anger. And look, you, cars speeding down the street, that's like one of the most civil examples that we have. Most of the time, we get angry because we love the wrong things. And in fact, this is another sermon, but if you want to know what you really love, just pay attention to what makes you angry, all right? It's another sermon. What about with God? Well, God is love, not anger. 
God is love, not anger. But God feels anger when his love is offended, and that's what sin is. Sin is most basically a despising of God and his love. It is a willful, personal snub of the God who is love and who made us by love. And so God judges sin. God is angry towards sin. And every sin, every wrong will be punished because God's love is that valuable. God's love is worth defending. So God does nothing but by love because God is love. So God's love is deep. Third here, God's love is determined. And this is the part that I think we just need to sink in. We've, we've seen, we've talked about that God's love is demonstrated in the cross. We, we see that God's love is deep. But how do we bring that down to this lived reality? How do we bring that down to the details of our everyday? How can God's love really be known and relied upon and experienced? And I, I think we see the phrase here in 1 John 4. It's when John says in verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. What John is saying here, he's saying, this is how we know it's love. This is how we know it's love. It's that we haven't loved God, but God has loved us. This is the same thing that Paul is saying back in Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means that God's love is love because we don't deserve it. God's love is not a reaction to something in us. God's love is not him paying us back what he owes us. Instead, God's love is wholly determined by himself. God's love flows from his heart. It's not in reference to our goodness, and it's not restricted by our badness. God's love is because of who he is. God loves us because he loves us. And this is one of the most life-changing breakthrough truths in the entire Bible. And the Bible is clear about this. It goes back to the Old Testament when God chose the people of Israel, when God rescued Israel from slavery, and God's telling them how to live in the promised land, God tells them first at the foundation why he saved them. Okay, God's telling Israel, this is why I saved you. Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because... The Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, God loves you not because of you, but God loves you because he loves you. God says it three more times in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says that my love for you, Israel, to his people, God says, my love for you, my giving you these promises is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of you. It is not because of you. But I love you because I love you. 
We see the same truth in the New Testament. Jesus himself says in John 15, I did, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Paul says it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul says it again in Ephesians chapter 1. He says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is what this means. Look, right now, if you are here and you trust in Jesus, in this moment, if you're here and you are united to Jesus by faith, I want to tell you, God loves you. I want you to hear that. God loves you. He loves you, and he loves you not because you are great, but because he is. It's because he's great, and the implications here are glorious. God loves you not because you're great, but because he's great. We're going to talk about that over the next three weeks, but I want to give you two implications here in closing. Okay, Because God's love is determined, not owed, it means that he's the one who brings you to himself, and he's the one who keeps you. And I hope you feel how relevant this is because I know that there are some of you here who are kind of on the fence about God. You're kind of you're on the fence about God and church and all that. And you, you've kind of got one foot in and you've got another foot out. And before you really take that step and give your life to Jesus, you think you need to clean up a few things first. I know what that's like because I've been there, okay? This is the kind of thinking that, that thinks, before I can really be committed to Jesus, I need to set a few things in order first. Before I can really give my life to Jesus, I, I need to improve myself. This is the kind of thinking that says, before I can really know the love of God, I need to make myself more lovable. Stop that. If you think that, and we do, Stop it. Wherever you are, I want you to know this. Hear this. This is for everybody in this room. Wherever you are right now, God loves you there. He does. Wherever you are, God loves you there. And it is God's love that will bring you from there to himself. God's love is not waiting on you to get your act together because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. This means that God doesn't love us because of the cross, but there is a cross because God loves us. So wherever you are, wherever you're coming from, you can know that right there where you're at, God loves you. And the cross shows us that he loves you. The cross shows you that he loves you. So look, come to him. Would you just come to him? 
He loves you where you are. Trust in God. Put your faith in Jesus. He loves you. And, and now for those of us who have come to him, I want you to know he's not going to let you go. It's God's love that brings you, and it's God's love that keeps you. And the more, man, this is so true. This is the whole point of what I'm trying to say here in this series. The more we know that, the more we are assured of God's love, the more it will change us. And this is where, church, we just need this to wash over us. We just need the truth of God's love to wash over us. Because to be honest with you, I'm just going to be real and be personal for a minute. Um, so over the last year, there have been moments when I have been very discouraged. And I'm not prone to discouragement. It's not, it's not something that I'm used to. Um, but I have felt discouraged. And it's been one of those discouragements, and some of you guys know what, exactly what I'm talking about. It's one of these discouragements that just kind of linger. You know, you just can't seem to get it to go. It just kind of lingers. And it's, it's, been, it's, it's been tough. It's been weird. It's been hard. And yet somehow, like in the middle of the discouragement, like sometimes right in the moment or, or at least at night when I tuck my kids into bed, in the discouragement, I can sing. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you know it, you can sing with me. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I sing it as I'm tucking my kids into bed, and I believe it. Do you know why I believe it? Because he does love me, and he keeps me, and he loves you, and he's going to keep you. Circumstances do not get the final say. Your successes and your failures do not matter. When it comes to the love of God, this is a love that pursues us. This is a love that we are never going to be separated from. And so the love of God, know this, the love of God is not an accessory truth to the Christian life. The love of God is the only way that we're going to make it. And we're going to make it. And that's what the table's about every week. Every week we come to this table, we take the bread, and we take the cup, and this is what we're remembering at this table. We are remembering this is how it's love. This is how it's love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us, and he sent his son to die for us. And so when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are saying, thank you. 
Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. And this morning, if you would say that, if that is your heart of gratitude to God for the death of Jesus, if that's what you would say this morning, we invite you to enjoy this table with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. No doubt, right now, your love overcomes. Your love is mighty and unending, everlasting. God, your love is all we really ever need. And so we thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for us. Overcome our hearts now in this moment, we ask. Assure us more and more. Assure us of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to serve the bread first. Uh, His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.